Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Have you ever been sitting at your office desk and found yourself daydreaming about becoming a farmer? Well, my guest today has written a practical, all-encompassing handbook to help you turn that dream into reality. His name is Forrest Pritchard. He's a farmer and the co-author of the book, Start Your Own Farm, the authoritative guide to becoming a sustainable 21st century farmer. We begin our conversation discussing the state of the farming profession today and the social and economic forces that have made it harder and harder to pursue. Despite the headwinds facing would-be farmers, Forrest makes the case for why farming can still be a fulfilling and financially sustainable profession. He then delves into the nitty-gritty of starting and running a farm, including startup costs, land acquisition, deciding on what to farm, creating multiple streams of revenue, pricing product, and figuring out where to sell your goods. We then discuss the mental and emotional toll of farming and how to manage burnout. If you ever dreamed about becoming a farmer, this episode will provide a lot of useful information. Even if you don't want to become a farmer, you'll find this to be a surprisingly interesting look at a lesser-known lifestyle and gain insights that are applicable to any business and to life in general. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash start your farm. Forrest joins me now via clearcast.io. Here we go. Forrest Pritchard, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brett. It's always the greatest honor being invited a second time, I think. so. Well, yeah, we had you on about six years ago, talk about your experience of becoming a farmer. Now you got a new book out called Start Your Farm, The Authoritative Guide to Becoming a Sustainable 21st Century Farmer. This is basically a how-to guide for other people who have had that itch to become a farmer. This is how you do it. Let's talk about the state of farming as a profession today. Has it changed in the six years since you were last on the show, or is it about the same? Well, I think it's changed in ways that consumers, which you know is all of us, you, you, me, and everybody that's listening, because we all we all eat three times a day, hopefully, can identify in kind of an unexpected way. Um, I don't think agriculture itself has changed nearly so much as consumers being more conscious, whether intentionally or unintentionally, um, about where their food comes from. And to wit, you know, yesterday Walmart announced, you know, major headline sourcing cattle for 500 different Walmart locations from, from a, from a network of co-op farmers down in Texas. So their customers who are interested in knowing more precisely where their food comes from can have a, you know, a direct source of, of putting a face to that food. 
so, you know, a, a college roommate of mine 20 years ago kind of heard what we were doing and he, he kind of got a faraway look. He's, he's an MBA guy. And he said, look, Forrest, if what you're saying about organic and sustainable food is half as good as it sounds to me, and he said, and it sounds very good, eventually the big boys, quote unquote, are going to want to get into it. And it's taken two decades, but here they are. Well, so there's an uptick in interest in independent farming. But as you talk about in the beginning of the book, farming as a profession, like getting into it, you know, it's been declining for the past 100 years. And I think it's now like, what is it like? Yes. 2% of the population are farmers. Is that correct? Yeah, a little bit less than that, but not to split hairs. Right. I mean, what's, I mean, a lot of that is just due to mechanization, correct? Yeah, well, it's due to a lot of things. I, I think mechanization is certainly a part of that. You know, post-industrial revolution, once that really hit its stride, you know, let's just throw a number out there, say post-1920, things really started to decline. We're talking industrialization on, on a, uh, you know, multi-decade level and in kind of the advent of improved seed varieties and things of that nature. But I think that, you know, there was an intersection that eventually led to specifically the the decline of the classic American farm, which is that one we kind of imagine our, our grandmother and grand, granddad farming or our aunt and uncle in some recent distant past, which is the midsize farm. It's the one with the dairy cows and, and some pigs and chickens, which isn't completely extinct, but it's, it's largely mythological at this point. And there's there's a whole number of reasons we could devote a full hour you know, drilling into the economics of all that. But for, for the sake of this discussion, we've got, you know, kind of mega farms on one end and smaller economic, economically sustainable farms on the other. And, you know, kind of the missing link is that classic mid-sized American farm. So not only are the number of farmers going down because <laughs> you know, we, we need fewer farmers, it's possible to, to get the food we need right. with fewer farmers next to these giant agribusinesses. There's, there's that aspect, but there's also, it's hard to become a farmer too, because like there's less land. I mean, you know, you go 150 yeah. years ago, 100, you know, like the country was given away land even then. That's right. And I should back up just a second and put an asterisk next to, you know, enough, enough mechanization to grow our food. It's, it's to grow a certain kind of food. And, and, you know, from a large scale agricultural standpoint, we're talking farms in excess of thousand to two thousand acres and up into the tens of thousands of acres. We're largely talking about corn, soybeans, wheat, and uh, confinement livestock systems, you know, confinement chicken, things of that nature versus a lot of times what we, identify as food is, you know, our, our salads and our other items on the menu that aren't called, you know, chicken sandwiches. So there's just this big disparity between mechanization and what has to be more intentionally hand grown. But yeah, I mean, to your, to your second point, you're out in Oklahoma. It wasn't more than 150 years ago that the uh, Homestead Act enabled folks to, you know, literally go out there with their sooner wagons and, and do these land rushes and get a uh, hundred plus acres, up to 300 acres. As recently as I think the late 60s, early 70s, one could homestead in Alaska. So the government was giving away this land if you could demonstrate that you were quote unquote improving the land. That meant growing a, a crop and and putting putting a house on the land. So there was this free land. There was all the way back to the American Revolution when we didn't have you know an economy, so to speak. Uh, soldiers were given free land as compensation for fighting the American Revolution. And this land has been handed down to people to a certain degree, people like myself. Uh, I didn't purchase my farm. It was handed down to my grandfather. It wasn't originally purchased, but I didn't go out and purchase it. 
so there's, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of folks out there that either were given the land in one way or another, which makes it really challenging to create a level, level playing field when it comes to business. And we'll get into the land topic of what you can do to overcome that issue if that's something you want to do. But let's say despite all these headwinds that are going against farming as a profession, you've got you know, economic incentives, thanks to subsidies where, you know, corn, soybeans, wheat, all that stuff. That's there's incentive to grow that stuff. Right. There's it's fewer we need fewer farmers to produce that sort of thing. Correct. There's less land available. And also farming is just really, it's expensive and hard to do despite all that. Yeah. Why should someone decide to become a farmer? Well, you've listed all the very pragmatic, sensible, logical reasons not to do it. And then, you know, this is something we immediately tackle in in chapter one of the book. Uh, we don't beat around the bush with asking the question, why be a farmer? Which is followed by chapter two is, uh, do you have what it takes? These are very introspective questions. So, so why do you do anything? You know, why did you start, you know, the art, art of manliness brand? Presumably you had a passion for it. You had something that transcended just dollars and cents to saying, this is something you want to devote yourself to. It, it means something to you. And, and farming fits all those categories, I believe, for many of us. You know, what's not to like about growing food, what's not to like about healing the land, what's not to like about having a family, you know, on, on a piece of property or where kids are able to, you know, free range and, and come home to the ring of a dinner bell. It sounds a little dreamy, but it's also very realistic and, and attainable when one puts their mind to it. It's one of those questions, you know, you have to ask, how can you justify or do anything that isn't just getting on the hamster wheel and, you know, and, and getting in the, uh, getting in the car every morning and, and getting into the commute. A lot of people wait their whole lives to, to some, you know, fictional retirement that never really fulfills itself either. So you start farming just like you do any passion. You just start. Well, I'm curious. So you've been, you've been working with, you know, sort of people who are just getting started with farming. Yeah. Who are these people that are doing it? Are they people who have had like a family history of farming or it's like, these are, you know, just sort of city dwellers and they, they went out for a vacation to Vermont and they decide, oh, this looks really nice. I want to become a farmer. Yeah, it's it's a terrific question, but it's it's not an easy one to answer. So I think there's burgeoning interest that's pretty widespread. I'm sure your listeners will be able to kind of identify themselves through this. As alluded to earlier, there's the dreamers of the worthy dream. You think to yourself, well, maybe I'm not satisfied with the job I currently have. What could I do that would provide more meaning to my life? Farming certainly fits that bill. You have young people, and make no mistake that farming requires energy and enthusiasm and physicality. And you get these 22-year-olds who have just graduated with a BA you know, from from whatever college and get to looking around and saying, geez, uh, is this what I want to participate in? Maybe I want to do something uh, to get my hands in the soil after, after uh, 18 years of, of being under fluorescent lights. Maybe yeah, I don't want to sign up for that anymore. And then you've got folks that maybe like, like me inherited land and get intimidated by the thought of, you know, $500,000 combines or thousands of acres of monoculture, corn and soybeans and say, look, maybe I want to pivot into something where I can be more of a participant in my community. Maybe I want to be able to get an authentic paycheck for my food instead of what's dictated by the Chicago Mercantile Board of Exchange, you know, things like that. So I think there's there's a whole different 
bunch of angles that folks can be taken to kind of arrive at a similar destination. So you mentioned in the book, you start off talking about like just the practicalities and you, it's a very, it's like a rude awakening, right? You, you guys lay out, your co-author and you lay out like, man, it's tough. You're going to, you're going to, you might lose money. There's going to be years that you're just like, man, I don't know if I can do this. Um, but then you talk about like, there's certain mindsets and skills you kind of have to have going into being a farmer so you can prepare for that. So what are some of those, like the mindsets and I don't know, they're like, I wouldn't say like specific, like hard skills, like how to till and things like that. Cause you can learn that, but like the sort of softer skills that you need in order to make a go at farming. Yeah. Well, we were chatting briefly before we went on air about how this is kind of a, a sneaky business book and a farming is a business. I, I think it's a wonderful kind of like a primer for an MBA. I think you could get a lot of transfer credits by trying to operate a farm for a year and then enter any, any MBA program in the country. So first and foremost, we need to think about farming from a profitability margins and and all those wonderful uh, didactic terms uh, that we get before our eyes glaze over. But pursuing that passion, we have to think some really practical considerations. Are we physically fit for this? Can, are we willing to face seven day a week work? Are we too introverted to promote our products? Are we intellectually curious enough to do the hard work of, of understanding uh, all the science that goes into successful agricultural production? And, you know, last but not least, are we willing to kind of put all those things together and risk emotional and, and, and mental burnout, you know, are we able to pace ourselves and, and, and be our own best ally in taking care of ourselves? Something we could all probably improve on. No, for sure. And when you work with young farmers, what's like the most common erroneous assumption you see them have that makes farming a lot harder than it needs to be when they're first starting out? Well, that's a terrific question. And you know, we've all probably heard some iteration of do what you love and the money will follow. I think that's that's certainly been the case for me, but it's it works a lot better after 10 years. <laughs> you know, uh, once you've got all the economic framework, the the customers and the hard the hard business of failure, the hard business of 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 struggling through failure. So, I think it is wise to pursue farming from a passion and a dream a standpoint. But to go in, as, as my co-writer Ellen says, with, with eyes wide open to this, because the money will eventually follow, but it does, it just, any business takes so long. I mean, the average business takes five years of running at a loss. And with farming, that can just be, you know, terrifically debilitating on top of the physicality, the dependence on the weather, the competition of dealing with corn that's that's $3 a bushel, the same price it's been since 1975, for Pete's sake, price of a pizza, which is $5.99 delivered from Domino's. I can put in my old VHS tapes from uh, you know 1995 and see the same pizzas from 25, 30 years ago at this point. So there's just, there's just terrific headwinds to success. And that's the most important thing to be aware of. It, it's, not, it, it's not insurmountable but one needs to be aware of it. Yeah, just it's going to take time. That's right. Yeah, I think that's one of the th- hard things with particularly p- younger people who are getting into farming for the first time never really had like, you know, grandparents or aunts and uncles who were on a farm. Like when when I was reading this book and I when I've read, you know, I talked to you previously, one of the things about farming is that the time scale you have to think on 
is, you know, years, two years, maybe 10 years, because sometimes it might, that takes that long for uh, a field to get ready or a cow to get ready for slaughter. And we're so used to today, if you haven't any experience with that, it's like, well, it's like the quarter, like what can I get done in a quarter, like, or next week. And so being able to expand your time frame or how you think about time, I, I imagine is a, is a, is a shift that, that can be really hard to make for a lot of beginning farmers. Yeah, I'd agree with that wholeheartedly. You know, I don't want to ignore the fact that we have huge assets that didn't exist previously, too. I mean, our ability to brand ourselves, to share our story on social media, you know, Instagram and 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 websites and, and Twitter and, and all that stuff is extraordinary. And the ability for us to provide transparency and authenticity on one end, and then consumer, as I, you know, as I allude to to start the conversation off, Walmart is is finally got on board with this, and you know the former CEO of what is it that home delivery service Blue Apron, right? Right. He's now the biggest fan of free range chicken, and they're going to you know quote unquote revolutionize the free range chicken business. So all these, you know, if Silicon Valley on one end and and Arkansas from the point of Walmart is getting in into this on the other, that's a huge corporate asset to a new farmer because that's just driving consumer awareness. So there's, it's not all headwinds. There are some, some remarkable tailwinds as well. Again, as long as we go in here with the knowledge that some things from a biological standpoint, such as the restoration of soil, you know, just physically it's, it's seven to 10 years. It's a mandatory thing. There's only so much of a rush job you can do and rush jobs generally get us into trouble. All right, so let's say someone's listening and they decide they want to they go in on farming. The next decision you have to make is like, what kind of farming are you going to do? Right. So how do you, how do you make that decision? Because like you mentioned earlier, because like the, the stereotypical farm that we think of when it's like Aunt Bess and Uncle Joe or whatever, uh, oh, it was like, yeah, it was a dairy farm. There was corn, there was lettuce, there was, you know, chickens, multi-things. But it seems like in the book, you said that's pretty hard to pull off, especially when you're starting off. Yeah, well, I mean, think about it, Brett. I mean, how many things can you be an expert at? Yeah, not many. Are, are you going to be an expert accountant and a plumber and a car mechanic? You know, probably not, right? I mean, how many? We we live in a time of special specialization, and you know, I kind of joke at farmers market. People often say, "Well, you raise." cattle and pigs and sheep and chickens? Do you also have a dairy and do you, you know, have a garden and raise fruits and have horses? And I say, of course I do. I'm also a, a cowboy astronaut and I drive a mechanical unicorn to work. <laughs> you know, I mean, how many, how many ways can we spread ourselves thin? So, so knowing that, and I think there's wisdom in, in kind of taking a big step back and saying, look, can I grow blueberries and, and, and goats at the same time? Maybe, but to fool ourselves into thinking that there's not an infinity of information out there on both of those subjects is, is truly delusional. So what can we do to circumvent that? Uh, we do apprenticeships. We go to the source of people who are experts and we politely ask for their knowledge, right? So we do that by being an intern or an apprentice and there's no age barrier to any of this stuff. If, if you're 40 years old and you're saying, I'm not going to be an apprentice on a sustainable vegetable farm, then your ego is much too far in the way to become a farmer. So you need to work on that first. <laughs> uh, and then once you're able to realize that there's this just a huge ocean of, of very useful experience out there, then we can use the goodwill of other people to leverage that to our benefit. Right. And this is how this isn't romantic or, you know, new age thinking. This is how we got 
forward as a civilization for, for millennia. You had apprentices, uh, apprentice to masters, and you had apprentices to the apprentices, and it's a succession of knowledge. And as much as I like to jump on YouTube and watch a five-minute video and, and feel like I, I now know how to grow hops, for example, it, life just doesn't work that way. Uh, there's too many variables to it. And that's, that's always going to be a human, a human component where the master needs to teach, teach the student. So you can, uh, yeah, sink in with somebody to learn this stuff. You don't have to start off from scratch. Yeah. You don't want to overextend yourself. That's like any business. I mean, there's a lot of business, if you're a small business owner and they're listening to that, it's like, well, of course I wouldn't like try to do, you know, five different things in my business that would just lead to failure. The same applies to a farm. So you can't, you have to pick one thing that you're going to do really well at. But here's the question. Is, is it going to say like you decide blueberries are your thing? Like, is it always going to be blueberries or are you going to have to change sometime? Well, you know, nature hates a vacuum as much as like, you know, the human spirit. So, you know, if I was a new farmer starting out, I would, and we've got a whole chapter devoted to this. It's called uh, matching the land to its suited use, right? So you've identified yourself as a farmer. You've got the passion, you've got the spirit, you've got the physicality. Next, we need to say, hey, I'm in Temecula, California. This is ideally suited for citrus, probably not suited for, you know, growing cattle, uh, for example, or perhaps maybe that's not the best example, but you get my point. It's, it's arid and it's dry and it's, it's a high elevation. I'm in upstate Wisconsin. Maybe it's not best suited for citrus and vice versa. So we, ha- we take a big look at this and then we have to say, well, what's our market? Is the market saturated with blueberries? Is there an opportunity for, you know, goat cheese? Is there enough? On the opposite end of the spectrum, are, you know, federal subsidies so compelling that I should be growing, you know, a thousand acres a week this year? So there's, there's all these various metrics that combine to overlap into a Venn diagram, you know, where you find your sweet spot in the center. And so you start out with blueberries, for example, build your expertise with that. And then, of course, you're going to expand. If, if you're selling blueberries, people are going to want to know, well, where are the raspberries? You know, so you expand into raspberries. And if you're into raspberries, people are going to say, well, where are the peaches? You know, so maybe you dip your toe into these different areas, but probably don't, you don't try to start out in the first five years of becoming an expert on, uh, on brambles and bush fruits and also try to uh, be raising, you know, aquaculture where you're raising rainbow trout on the side, uh, for example. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. 
All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out, where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. If you're like my family, we're getting to the busy part of the year. Spring sports are happening, a lot of after-school activities. So sometimes planning and cooking dinner, just don't have time for that. That's where Factor Meals comes in. With Factor, you get fresh, never-frozen meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. With Factor, you get restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, no cleanup needed. It's also less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian-approved to be nutritious and delicious. So we've been using Factor meals in the McKay household for a while now. There's a lot of reasons why we like them. First off, the food tastes great. Last week, I had creamy pesto pork chop with spinach, cauliflower, rice, roasted green beans. Tasted fantastic. But the big selling point, it's easy. There's no cooking. There's no cleaning up. It's great for those nights when you're busy and you don't have much time. Uh, to to take care of dinner and you don't want to do takeout because you feel gross after takeout. If you'd like to try Factor Meals, head to factormeals.com slash manliness50 and use code manliness50 to get 50% off. That's code manliness50 at factormeals.com slash manliness50 to get 50% off. Check it out today and make sure to check out the creamy pesto pork chop. It's really good. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss, a lot of useful information in there, talked about the value of known in negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Well, it's, but here's the thing about specialization that can get you in trouble, particularly on a farm, is that, okay, berries only grow a certain time of year and there's a harvest season and they're going to sell a certain time of year. Like, how do you figure out what do you do with the rest of your time, right? Or like, what, is, what, do, you, what do you do if like the berry crop just sucks that year. Like, I mean, so I mean, I, I imagine you, you don't want to diversify too much, but there has to be some diversity in order to keep the income coming in so you can stay afloat. Right. Well, you are already thinking like a businessman farmer. So kudos to you. Yes. <laughs> you are a shining example for our listeners. So, uh, 
terrific questions. What do you do with that? Well, you probably the first thing to do is immediately go into a, a concept of year round availability, which would require what we call value adding, right? So you take a fresh product and you somehow turn it into additional value. You could, you could freeze that product. You could turn it into pies, jams. I'm just spitballing uh, from the blueberry standpoint. What I do as a livestock farmer in a parallel universe is we raise lamb about six months out of the year. And so what I do is I stock because that's the, the optimal growing season for us is when pasture is flourishing, the lambs are going to grow at the cost of me of photosynthesis, rainfall, and my personal management. It's going to cost me a lot more to feed those lambs, you know, hay in the middle of January hour I am then in the middle of July when uh, things are flourishing. So we'll grow way in excess number of lambs that we're able to grow. And then we will, you know, process those lambs, vacuum pack them and freeze them at zero degrees. And then we'll, you know, spin that product off throughout the next six months. So, you know, there's end arounds on all this stuff. Your listeners might be thinking, well, what do you do with, you know, 10,000 acres of corn or soybeans? Well, that's our commodity system and it goes into rail cars and gets distributed to confinement livestock systems or turns into biodiesel or things like that. So these are less perishable goods. But when you're dealing with perishability from a something that's not going to be turned into, you know, diesel fuel or animal feed, uh, then you've you've got a lot more considerations for sure. So let's talk about so we've figured out what we want. So you're gonna have to you're gonna grow whatever's good for the area. You're gonna take into account the demand for it. So you have to, you know, put on your economics hat and look into that. You also have to think about diversity, diversifying in a way that you don't overextend yourself, but still allow yourself to have income coming the entire year. And there's ways you can even diversify within like the niche you pick. Let's talk about the thing you need to have a farm, which is land. And as we talked about earlier, that's in short supply now. So, and it's getting expensive. So how do you start, how do you get the land you need to start a farm when it's pretty hard to get a hold of? It's an enormous question. I think it's one of the, uh, you know, I think historians will probably look back for the early 21st century and, and say, this is one of the, the elephant, you know, the big elephants in the room that we were all kind of ignoring. So, Terrific question. Again, complicated answers. We try to provide a lot of answers to this. I think chapter five is is getting your hands on land. And we acknowledge this problem first and foremost in so much that land is mostly valued on what kind of house you can build on it, not what kind of fruits and berries and, and, and chickens you can raise on it, right? So we've kind of shifted historically you know, the bullseye on what is land for. Land is for subdivisions and and strip malls. No disrespect, people have to live somewhere. I get that. But we also have to eat. So the bullseye has shifted so radically, it's left people who want to buy land kind of in the lurch. So it's my opinion, and, you know, listeners might be saying it's easy for me to say because I already have my land, but it troubles me that I'm unable to go out and replicate my business. That's not the, a sustainable business model to me. You're like, yes, I'm profitable from a uh, an operating cost standpoint, but from an investment standpoint, I'm still trying to recoup those costs. And that bothers me because, uh, you know, beware of false profits, right? <laughs> so we have to move the bullseye away from land ownership, which is a very romantic part of our American dream and manifest destiny in our American experience and all these things and get into what we call land acquisition or land access is, is a better word for that. And land access can mean a whole suite of things. 
all those farmers who have traditionally inherited their land, more commonly than not, I think it's up to 70% of, of those landowners, this statistics kind of bouncing around in my head, have children and or grandchildren that are not interested in either becoming farmers or managing that land. Light bulb, huge opportunity to leverage the land that you need at a long-term lease or some kind of a profit-sharing arrangement where you never have to take physical ownership. You never have to go to the bank and say, hey, would you loan me $2 million so I can capitalize my farm outside of Denver or outside of Chicago? And, you know, in a business that's, you know, lucky to return five to 10%, you're not going to get that loan. It's not going to happen. Okay. So we have to creatively utilize, again, going back to the passion and the dreams of these landowners who want to see their farms remain farms and, and try to pair that goodwill with our ambitions. I think it's a very sensible way to do that. Now, if we're intent on having to own the land, Ellen and I have come up with about five or six different, what we think are pretty clever ways to go about doing so, which would take too much time in this podcast. So I encourage you to go out and read chapter five. <laughs> so yeah, you, you encourage like just leasing, like finding someone just to lease the land from to grow your land and look for a long-term lease. You're looking 10, 20, maybe even 50 years. Yeah, certainly to start with at least. That way you're softening, you've got a soft landing if things don't work right. Because Typically, it's it's extraordinary. You can lease or rent land as you know, pick your uh, pick your terminology for a fraction, an absolute fraction of what it costs to buy the land, but be able to produce the same goods. So, I mean, if you're a factory and you're able to produce the exact same goods for nickel or the same goods for ninety cents, I mean, what are you going to do? Presumably, if if everything else is absolutely equal, you're going to take that advantage. And this is just uh, the, you know, like farmland rents for like $70 an acre, or depending on where you are, versus $7,000 an acre. Okay. I mean, this, these aren't, these aren't uh, numbers I'm pulling out of thin air. You just, you know, get, get on your local Craigslist and look for a pasture rental or, or cropland rental. It's somewhere, you know, between 50 and $150 an acre across the country, maybe as high as 300, but you're not going to find land even in the most remote areas of the country that are likely to be less than $3,000 an acre. And if you're anywhere at all near an urban population where you're likely to get the highest return for your goods, we're talking tens of thousands of dollars per acre. So yeah, we have to be intelligent business people and maybe compromise what a, what a concept, you know, to compromise our dreams or to, you know, kind of pull the reins momentarily on our passions to have the economic return to, to defer that dream to somewhere in the future. It's a real concept. <laughs> no, sure. I think that's, that's like one of the most interesting chapters I read where you made the case like don't buy land because you're never you're you're, you're not going to get your money back basically for a, I mean for a very long time if you even do. But, but let's go back to this this idea that the, what there's a downside to farming is that there's less land because a lot of it's been going to development as for the suburbs and things like that. There's actually an upside to that because now you have you can have farmland, access to farmland if you're leasing, but still be close to a market. Like you don't have to drive 2 or 3 hours, it might just be 30 minutes. Right. So overhead is, is the, the, you know, the distribution marketing and, and overhead of, of getting this food onto, you know, Arby's and Chick-fil-A's and, and Panera's across the country from sea to shining sea 
is largely taken care of by the commodity system. Uh, so the farmer receives a nominal price, which is determined in Chicago for corn, soybeans, wheat, chicken, hogs, all these things. And then food makes its way through the distribution, the processing and the trucking and the warehousing and into these restaurants. And the farmer receives, you know, historically 10 cents on the dollar for that. It's, it's a kind of diminishing, diminishing thing. But the benefit is, is you don't have to worry about your own warehousing and distribution, all those things. So it's, you know, Ellen and I posit that the, the biggest value in all likelihood and our peer group, and, you know, we travel around across the country and speak at conferences and meet people and all this stuff. The, the biggest advantage is to grow on one to two acres of intensive vegetable or fruit production or some kind of micro, you know, laying hens or, or something like that, or maybe a, a goat cheese dairy, something that can sustainably be produced on a couple acres and perhaps even purchase those acres. But again, you know, if you, if you cannot do that, then don't. And then you've got your customer base built in. It's, it's pretty remarkable, I think. And again, going back to those consumers who are already keyed into having that connection with the land, which is now missing not just a generation, but probably two generations to borrow your, uh, your, your uncle Joe and aunt Bess analogy from earlier. And on top of that social media, you can just, you know, acquire 10,000 fans practically overnight. So what an amazing time to be thinking about, especially small scale, sustainable agriculture. Yeah. Speaking of small scale and being close to the market, like I think in Detroit, they're doing that thing where they're taking neighborhoods that have just been abandoned and they're turning into little small farms where they're growing lettuce, carrots, goats, and it's right there in Detroit. Yeah, it's extraordinary. So one farm I visit is, is called D-Town, and Abo Ifoima was spearheading that a few years ago. She's one of the main partners there. And they took uh, River Rouge Park, which is Detroit's central park. And it's truly, it's, you know, I don't want to overstate, to, I don't want to insult people from Detroit, but I think anyone would agree with me. It was overgrown and the, the budget wasn't there to maintain this place. They had an Olympic swimming pool that they put in and it's just, you know, full, it's got tires laying in it at least a couple of years ago. And they negotiated with the, with the city and said, look, we've got the manpower and the motivation to put a farm in the middle of this park and start teaching kids how to grow asparagus and lettuce and, you know, honeybees. What, but we don't have any money. What can you do? And they leased it for 10 years for a dollar a year, seven acres, seven acres in the middle of Detroit. That's extraordinary to me. So, you know, you, let's, let's, let's be creative and, and we have to move, move the bullseye on, on this idea of land ownership. Because once we pull back the curtain, we realize that land ownership has never really been a, a level playing field to begin with, uh, with the land giveaways and the inheritance, right? So that's just an incredible story to me. Yeah, so you have to get creative and like don't, don't, yeah, and also move the bullseye of like it has to be out in the country somewhere to have a farm. It could be in a suburb literally, and you can have a, a good, sustainable, small farm. Yeah. Yeah. Brett, last, last week I was up in Central Park in New York and I was walking through just enjoying the lilacs and the, the, the splendor of Central Park and two guys come walking past me and they're talking very volubly and saying, oh, the future's in, uh, in vertical farming, you know, these abandoned warehouses and the other guys just agreeing. I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, when you're walking through Central Park in 2019 and two guys are talking about vertical farming, you know, we're just, uh, we've reached a different level of consciousness in this country. So, okay, you get the land, you're going to look for something maybe you could lease when you're first starting out. There's a little more cushion there in case things go wrong. But besides the land, like there's other stuff you need to start a farm. So you're going to need 
capital, like any business. It's like, what, what is that? Besides, what, what, do you, what are you going to use the money for when you first start your farm? Is it just buying? I mean, I guess it's going to depend on what you're farming, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so there's going to be, there's mandatory stuff that you have to have. There has to be some kind of infrastructure. So, you know, just, you know, nuts and bolts is going to be some kind of packing uh, shed slash workshop, right? Where you're going to keep your tools, park your, you know, hopefully modest uh, uh, amount of diesel, diesel and gas burning equipment. And a place to store your products against weather, ability to pack for whatever orders you have, whether it's going to be a restaurant business or a CSA, community supported agriculture, farmer's market, or, you know, up from there, you have to have these things. What else are you going to need? You're going to need a water supply. You're going to need presumably some kind of fencing to either keep varmints out of your pumpkin patch or coyotes out of your flock of lambs. So that's a safe bet. You're going to need a reserve fund for uh, unexpected contingencies, such as you know weather catastrophes, rainy days at your markets, times when the restaurant that's been reliably buying $3,000 every week of your product suddenly changes ownership and says, we don't, we don't know who you are anymore. Don't ask me how I know how that feels. It's heartbreaking. I'm stabbing myself in the chest right now. So all those things you know, are just practical considerations that are uh, also happen to be mandatory. So, I mean, how much, I mean, I guess, what's it look like? I mean, you imagine that a beginning farmer is going to have to take out some debt to get going yeah. or is it, yeah. Yeah. Ideally, again, if we are uniting, you know, the ultimate sweet spot to me is to identify with one of these older farmers. And I'm not, I'm, this isn't like a ride at Disneyland. Okay. There are services out there that pair, older farmers that want to supply a mentorship. Now, you know, nothing in life is easy, especially when you get into human nature, you got to deal with personalities. But so many of these farms exist with barns, power, water supplies, packing sheds, pickup trucks, tractors, okay? And these things, these items, if they're not utilized, get sold for insultingly less than less than pennies on the dollar. I mean, you just cue the John Mellencamp songs from 1985, you know, blood on the scarecrow kind of thing. It's, it's, it's a, it's a tragedy. So if we can have the wisdom to not only uh, uh, find these places that are willing to lend the expertise, lend the experience, sorry, the expertise, the experience, as well as the infrastructure, then our debt requirements can be, can be much lower. We just have to have the hopefully the wisdom to deal with the with the personalities of uh, of, a, of a potentially crotchety old farmer, right? Potentially crotchety. It's <laughs> a lot. Uncle Joe is pretty crotchety. I tell you, man. I tell you, but it's pretty uh, <laughs> pretty valuable if you don't have to uh, lay out a couple hundred thousand dollars. No, for sure. One of the most I think useful chapters for me, even though I'm not a farmer, I thought it was really a good business thing to think about, is that a farmer should focus on his limiting factors instead of trying to maximize their strength, which is kind of, it goes against to what you typically hear people say is, oh, you should focus on your strengths, not on your weaknesses. Right. Why, why is it important for farmers to think about their limiting factors? Because it's really hard to throw money at these, at these problems. See, with, with so many modern businesses, we, we hire a consultant. We got a problem, we hire a consultant. The consultant supplies a solution for us. And that's, that's all well and appropriate for a lot of businesses. Hey, I don't know how to network my cloud. So my app is at maximum functionality. Hey, there's a guy, you know, that can fix that for me. I pay him, you know, $4,500 and and off to the races I go. It's much more difficult for me to say, Hey, my soil is lacking in organic matter. 
I need to move my organic matter from 1.5% up to 3%. Well, how do you do that efficiently? Nature can do that. Nature has done that. It's called you know the Great Plains where the soil used to be. Presumably where you're sitting right now, the soil used to be like 30 feet deep or something like that. And then we had the dust bowl and it all blew to where I am in uh, Northern Virginia. You know, uh, The clouds turned dark in Washington, D.C. and there went all our soil 2,000 miles away. So there, our limiting factors can't just be solved by throwing money at them, especially because money is so hard to come by with farming. So we have to be patient by building our experience, growing our markets, developing a relationship with the land where you become like a doctor, for lack of a better analogy, where the land is communicating with you, telling you its symptoms, saying, you know, my elbow hurts over here and my stomach grumble is grumbly over here. Well, we need some different fertilizer over here and maybe we need different plants planted at, you know, not in a moist place on the farm, but a drier place and et cetera, et cetera. These things are just gained by hard-won experience rather than than financial solutions. So whatever our limiting factors are, we just have to be very patient with knowing that's going to take time. And your limiting factors is also going to control your growth, right? Like if you might have like that's a great correct. crop, but if you don't have a market for it, like that's your limiting factor, well, you're not going to do, you're not going to, you're not going to grow, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, maybe your limiting factor is, I mean, it could be all number of things. It can be a human component from emotionality to physicality to, you know, uh, experiential. It can be biological. It can be soil related. It can be weather related. It can be uh, financial related. You know, name your limiting factor. Name, name the weakness of, of your farm. And that's what's going to hold you back. But typically by necessity, that's the place where you have to address things slowly in order to move everything else forward. You know, if you have a bar graph, if you've, you know, you got, you know, six different bar graphs and one's human energy, one's economic resiliency, one's biological potential, one's uh, experience, you know, and insert a couple more. If five of those are within 10% of each other, but the, the sixth one is 50% reduced, it's going to, uh, to hold back the growth on, on the other five. And then you also give an example of, you know, playing to your strengths can work out for you in the short run, but then bite you in the butt in the long run. The, you gave, the example you gave that stuck out to me was your food truck business. Can you uh, talk about a, a bit about that? Yeah, well, my food truck business was the most successful business that ever failed. Okay. So at this point, you know, I've been farming for 22 years straight out of college and I have, I've, I've reinvented the wheel so many times. I'm, I'm very prepared not to try to do that anymore. But one of the things we tried to do was to take our product and embed a food truck within farmers markets. And it was a staggering success right out of the gate. We had lines 10 people deep, but it was too much of a success, right? So I, was true. So I hired, you know, I had a manager and everybody says, Oh, just hire a better manager. Well, that's, that's, uh, no disrespect. That can be very, uh, naive thinking. <laughs> okay. There's only so much a manager can accomplish without good ownership. And I was not being a good owner. Okay. I was not being the farmer that I needed to be. So suffice to say, we had too much success. Uh, we we're running out of things. I had personnel issues. I wasn't able to produce the quality of goods that I wanted to either back at the farm or to put out a great product on, on a bun in the form of a cheeseburger in, in DC, we, we got what's called a half smoke, which is kind of our native street food. And I realized that if I couldn't 
be the farmer than I, that I needed to be. There was no point in running a farm to table food truck. I could have all the management in the world, but if I didn't have the, the authenticity of the product, then it was only a matter of time before everything unraveled. So I ended up getting this food truck stuck in a tunnel in Georgetown University because long story short, we were supposed to take some measurements. The measurements weren't taken. And I'm in the middle of Georgetown in, during uh, dinner time, and the food truck is stuck in this tunnel. And I said, that's it. <laughs> that's it. I cannot be an hour away from the farm driving a food truck and being a farmer at the same time. Uh, so that's just one of those classic things, you know. And any business person is going to say, well, you just outsource that. Well, Brett, in my opinion, outsourcing leads to mediocrity. You know, that's that's how we get everything everywhere all the time. You know, food is 24-7 available, but is good food? Is, you know, is food, is nutritious and, and wonderful food available 24-7? No, it can't be by definition, right? And if it's not good food, I'm not interested in growing it. So there. All right. So you got to pick your battles. Yeah, I like it. I like it. It's a great example of success actually being, being a failure. So, okay, you've got your farm going, you're growing the product, but you got to price it to sell. And pricing things in any business is tricky, but it gets trickier in farming because, I mean, your approach could be, okay, let's look at what the market rate is, but maybe the market rate, if you sold it there, it would you'd cause you to go bankrupt in a season. Right. So how do you price a product when you're a, a small farmer? Yeah, so we take you through a whole thought diagram or, or th- you know, kind of a thought exercise in the book. But to nutshell it real quick, you're basically dealing with externalities that you can't control, largely, quote unquote, cheap food. So, you know, despite never growing food, as you, know, as you alluded to earlier, more than 98% of us don't do that. We all seem to be experts on what food should cost. And we take deep umbrage very much to the core of our hearts when we think uh, food is expensive and we make all sorts of jokes and snide remarks, perhaps without really fully understanding what food should cost. And, you know, the, the axiom that I try and keep in mind and, and tell folks is if we say, why is organic and sustainable food so expensive? We say, why is that so expensive? Well, we never ask why is that other stuff so cheap? Okay. So as farmers, we have to have an understanding of why these corn and soybean based products, AKA corn and soybean fed chickens and pigs, AKA bacon and, and chicken sandwiches, right? You following my train of thought here have been the same price practically for decades at this point. So that's what we have to deal with from a consumer standpoint. And then from business people, we have to take the wisdom of people like Warren Buffett, who says, never get into a business where you couldn't raise your prices 10% overnight and not, you know, lose your customers, right? So you have two very opposite ends of the spectrum right there. Okay. So it's our opinion. Again, this is way oversimplified and we give it a lot more color in the, in the book to don't apologize for your prices. If you apologize for your prices, you're doing yourself a disservice. You're dishonoring the hard work that you put into the product to push, push the high end of the limit of what the market will bear because you are growing a unique product. If you are putting your passion and, and turning your mineralized soil into a delicious product, whether that be heirloom tomatoes, and everyone knows how good a homegrown tomato tastes relative to the January tomatoes you get at Costco, right? 
Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that fresh eggs taste better than, than store-bought eggs that have been sitting on the shelf for a month. That translates in onto the plates and, and the taste buds of customers. If you are putting out a quality product, people don't mind paying for it. It's when you put out a mediocre product uh, that you can't charge a high price for it. So that was a lot of information shotgunned at you. But if you can figure out the, uh, the, um, the message and all that, then you're, then you're doing okay. So, okay, you've priced it. How do farmers sell their products? So there's farmer's markets, obviously. I think that's everyone would think, okay, let's go to the farmer's market. But there's other way, other places to go to sell your product because farmer's markets, they don't happen year round either. Yeah. Well, let's not have any confusion for any of your listeners who are, are farmers who are, you know, kind of thumbing their noses at farmer's markets. Uh, farmer's markets happen to be the poster child of a very charismatic face of a uh, strapping young hirsute 25 year olds wearing plaid and, and having perfect smiles. Right. And I say that good, very good naturedly, but, but farmer's markets comprise way less than 1% of the way our food I think even the way food is direct marketed, it's like less than 5%. Okay. And then the commodity, let's just, I'll just throw some numbers at you. So like 96% of our food system is commodity based corn, soybean, wheat, grain fed cattle, all this stuff. It's only like 4% that's being direct marketed. And only a fraction of that, maybe less than 10% or even 5% is, is through farmer's markets. So farmer's markets is a very infinitesimally small component of the way food gets transacted. Now, for farmers who aren't commodity farmers, which again is less than 4%, the vast majority of that is going through wholesale. So it's going to uh, uh, co-ops and wholesalers where people are making bids, much like the stock market, except this is the livestock market or the fresh vegetable market or the fresh fruit market. So then the distributor purchases and aggregates things that goes to a warehouse and then it gets to, uh, you know, downtown Oklahoma City on one end or, or you know, mom and pop stores in, in uh, Newark, New Jersey on the other end. And then other places that uh, food gets distributed is to restaurants, uh, direct, uh, direct from the farm or community supported agriculture, where farmers take subscriptions from individual citizens, consumers, and the, the, the customers buy shares of the farm up front, and then they get food spun off throughout the course of the year. And the list goes on and on and on. It's, it's just about as long as one can be creative. The shipping, of course, you can put it in a styrofoam box and, and overnight it. So yeah, that's, uh, that's plenty to think about, I think. No, there's just different ways. So don't just think farmer's market. There's other ways you can get your product to the market besides going to a place in a park in downtown Tulsa to sell cabbage yeah think about farmers markets to uh to take uh take your first date on that's a good first date move <laughs> not a good farmer's move first farmer day move debatable. debatable 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 all right well i mean so we've mentioned throughout this that in farming there's a lot of external factors that are outside of your control weather you get pestilence mm-hmm. animals get sick die it happen anytime and it can just like decimate you like for that year so how do you take that into account with your business when you don't know if it's going to happen or not that year? Yeah. So we take our cues from nature. Every farmer, irrespective of, of whether you're growing 10,000 acres of corn or a quarter acre, you know, of tomatillos, you know, in New Mexico, you have to take your cues from nature. So nature provides excess of everything. You know, there's there's always more seeds on a tree than than are going to turn into seedlings. I just had a, a sheep, a ewe that gave birth to quintuplets two days ago, right out in nature. If I wasn't there to assist her, statistically, at least two of those lambs would be preyed, preyed upon or or not be able to get enough milk to survive. Right. So nature provides all this 
excess. And we as farmers operate under the uh, egotistical illusion of, of control, right? We all, we all have that egotistical <laughs> illusion, you know, despite whatever uh, enterprise we might be pursuing, right? But farmers have to build abundance into their control mechanism. So when bad things happen, you either have that extra or you're able to allow it just to go fallow to, you know, to, you know, cue the birds for everything. There's a season, turn, 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 right? And, you know, one great example of this is Lloyd Nichols, who's up in Marengo, Illinois, outside of Chicago. He's Nichols Farm and Orchard sells to the Chicago farmers markets. And he has these migratory flocks of Canadian geese that come through and they just tear through his onions. All right. So he's got, you know, 100, 100 acres of onions, but he doesn't plant them all in 100 acres. He spreads them in different patches. So if the geese come down, they can only do so much damage. And of course he takes precautions to scare the geese away and all this stuff, but you can, you know, there's only so many places you can be at once and so much technology you can have, or his farm is so spread out that he might have like a, you know, a, a very strong storm at, at the North side of his farm, but the South side of the farm has no weather impact at all. So he grids his whole farm like a checkerboard even though he's got redundancies of all his crops uh, to help mitigate that. So that's, that's one clever way to, to help solve that. So another part, sort of practical aspect of farming that can be hard on folks is that, man, this is a job, an occupation where it's, it's 365 days of the year, right? Like it's Sunday and it's four inches of snow outside. The cows still need milking or whatever. Uh, there's no weekends. So how do you avoid burnout as a farmer? Terrific question. I don't know. I'll take uh, I'll take advice in the comment section of this podcast, please. <laughs> well, how do you do that? Uh, about being kind to yourself by realizing that you're human, making a good night's sleep a mandatory part of your schedule, by being very honest with your partner and taking care of your partner, so you so that you're taken care of. You, you need you need support, whether that's with a you know romantic partner, a business partner, your family whoever that is, you need other human contact. We need to be able to grouse, have, you know, be able to blow off steam appropriately. That doesn't mean like yelling at people, but be able to say, Hey, this thing really frustrated me today. And thanks for listening. You know, it's very therapeutic. Yeah. But most, most importantly is to have that intentionality of, of good habits. You know, my, my best friend from childhood is a neurologist down in Florida and he, he went to Duke University and got his MBA and, or not his MBA, his uh, MD, I'm sorry. And he sees all these patients. And I asked him a couple years ago, I said, let me ask you a question. You see all these people. I said, what's the number one complaint? He says, headaches and fatigue. And I said, that sounds right to me. Now, let me ask you this. I don't know anything about what you're doing, really. But what percentage of folks, if they just stayed hydrated and got a good night's sleep and did some meaningful exercise every day, would eliminate their problems, their symptoms? And he kind of got a faraway look in his eyes and he goes, you know, I'd guess about 90% of them. <laughs> right? And these folks come in, God bless them, wanting a pill or an MRI or a CAT scan. Now, let's not make any mistake, and some of these people have serious medical conditions, right? But the vast majority of folks are just like farmers, just like anybody who would benefit from good night's sleep, staying hydrated, getting your heart rate up for 30 minutes a day, and having love in your life that you you, nur you nurture and cherish. So that's how you do it, Brett. Simple, right? Sure. Yeah, simple. Before, let's say someone's listening to this, and they're like, man, this sounds great. I'm, I'm ready to quit the corporate job. 
exchange my necktie for a, a bow. Do farmers wear bolo ties? No, I don't think farmers wear bolo ties. A John Deere. They can. Hat. We, we get dressed. Yeah. We get dressed up sometimes. You get dressed up for the the, the hoedown. That's right. <laughs> I'm busting out as many farmer stereotypes as I can. Uh, uh-huh. Let's say they want to do that. Like, what's the first thing like you think they should go do? Like, what would be the first step to make that that idea a reality? You mean besides reading Start Your Farm, of course. Besides um, reading Start Your Farm, like what would be like the like actual thing? Like this was like concrete. Like this is going to put you down the path yeah. to getting yeah. going, become a farmer. Yeah, wonderful question. Get excited. Don't don't restrain yourself from enthusiasm. If you're feeling enthusiasm, if you're feeling passion, then you're feeling something right. Farming is an ancient, beautiful component of how we all got here. Uh, you know, whatever your opinions are about whatever you want to raise, whatever you know, wherever part of the country you are. Know, know that this morning you probably ate breakfast. You're probably going to want to have some lunch and maybe later you're going to have dinner. Where does that food come from? Could you be a participant in that? Could you contribute to that? Could you do it better than what you're getting? Those, that's, a, that's a worthy dream. And then beyond that, could you feed your community? Could you do this profitably? Uh, again, these are, these are worthy dreams. Right. And then educate yourself to the nth degree. Watch all the videos, uh, read all the books, then take the next step. Go out and identify people that are actually doing it and talk to them. Get the hard lessons. But do all this certainly before you start uh, getting on Zillow and Googling available land near me. All right. Well, Forrest, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Well, real easy forestpritchard.com. Of course, there's a little website out there called amazon.com. But I suggest you march boldly to your local bookstore in your hometown, which may not exist. So then you drive boldly to the town next to you and go to that local bookstore and be and patiently order the book so they get full retail value and you're supporting your downtown, presumably as well as your values. And I say that with no eye rolling. Love it. Well, Forrest, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brett. Pleasure's mine, and, and congratulations, Art Manliness is uh, is is uh, what am I trying to say? You've done a tremendous job. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. My guest today was Forrest Pritchard. He's the author of the book Start Your Farm. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, ForrestPritchard.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is/slash Start Your Farm. We can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years on farming. we got stuff on farming on there. Personal finance, how to be a better husband, better father, physical fitness, you name it, we've got it. And if you'd like to listen to new episodes ad-free of the Art of Manliness, you can do so only on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, sign up at stitcherpremium.com and use promo code manliness. And once you sign up, you can download the Stitcher app on iOS or Android and start enjoying ad-free episodes of The Art of Manliness. Again, stitcherpremium.com, promo code manliness. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay, reminding you not only listen to the AOM podcast, but put what you've heard into action.
Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 